What is going on, guys? This is Brendan Burns, and welcome to The Brendan Burns Show. Join me as I interview, dissect, and share the stories of high performers who have created the life that they deserve on their terms. I sit down with speakers, professional athletes, and successful entrepreneurs from all over the world who have chosen to live a life of fulfillment and joy over status and money. In each episode, I share actionable strategies that you can implement in your life, plus inspiration along the way. So come join me for this episode of The Brendan Burns Show. Brendan, welcome to The Unbeaten Path. Sean, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, really excited to have you on today. And I know your life is a big travel and adventure a lot, but right now, where are you located? I am located in the city that I was born in, but did not grow up in, which is New York City in Manhattan. Oh, okay. Where did you actually grow up? Not too far. It's funny. As I said that, I was like, came out like as if I grew up in China or something, but I grew up <laughs> <laughs> like, an, like an hour outside the city. I grew up on Long Island, so the suburbs of Manhattan. Oh, nice. And so were you, as a child, were you exposed to traveling or any adventure type of lifestyle? Because that's obviously where you ended up today. Mm -hmm. But is there an influence early on that would have led you there? Yeah, absolutely. So at this point, kind of the two biggest passions in my life are, you know, travel, adventure, helping inspire people to do what they love. And then on the other side would be coming from a past that included abuse. So I now help people with coaching and overcoming abusive situations like that. Um, so the abuse, unfortunately, came more from my parents. But the beautiful other side of my childhood was my close relationship with my grandparents, especially my father's parents. And they took me on a lot of traveling. Um, I would be like six or seven years old. And I went with them to London and California and all over the country. And uh, that really planted a seed for one of my biggest passions in life. And I'm really grateful to be able to travel with my grandma, my grandpa. I remember my grandma would come pull me out of school for like two weeks and I would get really nervous, like, Grandma, you know, but I'm going to miss all this class. Is this okay? And she would say to me, Oh, Brendan, you're going to learn way more on this trip with us than you would learn in the classroom. And I know it's a little, it sounds a little cheesy, but it's true. And I really um, did have these great experiences growing up. Yeah, that's uh, very fortunate you're able to do that at such a young age. And before we dive into more of that side of things, you mentioned that you came from abuse. And if you don't want to talk about it, let me know. But I think you've overcome it. Now you're helping people. So would you mind going into maybe that past of the abuse and how you dealt with it or overcame it? Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm happy to talk about these things in a large part because I've found it to be helpful to other people who either had a similar background and that's now affecting their life in some way, or they may find themselves still in abusive relationships, either with people in their family or in dating situations. So for me, I came from a past where my parents were mostly emotionally abusive, verbally abusive, physically abusive. Um, and it caused a lot of problems in my life and it was traumatic. And, you know, then my mother left my father for a stepfather who um, really suffered from addiction. So he was addicted to alcohol and drugs and painkillers and um, gambling and all, all these things. 
And if you Google him, uh, I checked this a couple of months ago, you just see pictures of him uh, in handcuffs getting pulled into court. And uh, it was it was sad. But, but the other thing worth noting is that I came from kind of an upper middle class background. And I think a lot of times abuse is kind of thought of to go in hand with people in poverty. And one thing that I try to do is help uncover a lot of the hidden abuse that happens in you know, white collar households and up, you know, upper class families where maybe it's more hidden in the sense of it's more emotional abuse rather than physical or sexual abuse, but it can still be just as damaging. And so, you know, I went, I went through a lot of abandonment uh, and neglect from both my parents, but especially my mother. Um, a lot of physical abuse was present from my father. So it was definitely traumatic growing up. And I never really knew, though. I was always in denial about it and kind of thought that everything was fine. And I'm very fortunate that when I completed college, I went to school in upstate New York and I stayed and did law school and my MBA. And by the time I got back down to New York City, where I've been living for the past five years, I entered a relationship which initially was going well. And then ultimately, all these other sides of me started coming out and I was being controlling and I was being difficult and I was being triggered a lot. And I was in a lot of emotional pain in that relationship. And just when that relationship came to a close, um, it was like all these things happened on the same day, pretty much like this woman broke up with me and we were living together and planning on, you know, going a lot further with our relationship. She breaks up with me. Um, I get fired from my job and my brother gets diagnosed um, and he's in the mental hospital because, you know, in in some part, because of our uh, exposure to this abuse, he had these mental disabilities and all those things happening at once, like my life came crashing down and it forced me to find answers. And I'm so grateful that those things happened, as crazy as that sounds, because that pushed me to like the self-improvement section of Barnes and Noble. And I just started reading and I tell people, I picked up this one book and I didn't even know what the word abuse meant, but I picked up this book called The Emotionally Abusive Relationship by a woman named Beverly Engel, who I've been working with one-on-one -on -one for the past several years. And it had one of those quizzes where it's like, you know, if you meet three of these 10 signs, then, you know, you're abusive or you had an abusive past. And, you know, every quiz I took was like 10 out of 10, 10 out of 20 out of 20. And it was very eye opening. And that was back um, about five years ago. And I really just dove in primarily because I wanted to be happy and I, I needed to figure my life out and why all my relationships were failing and why I had this, you know, I just wasn't on the right track for what I really wanted to do with my life. And by really investing in myself and reading, you know, tens, if not hundreds of books and spending hundreds of hours working with different coaches and experts, I, I was able to really work through tremendous things in my past, get to an amazing place where I am today, running my own business, you know, in, in much healthier relationships, both dating, but also with friends. And now that it's worked for me, I love helping other people do it. And that's a big part of what I do in my job today. Did you see any or go out and find any type of therapy besides books? Because I think there's a lot of stigma behind therapy, especially nowadays, I guess it's probably getting broken a little bit because I myself have dealt with depression, and anxiety, like I have gone and seen therapists and just be able to talk to someone's huge. I wonder if you were able to find any way to break through besides the books with therapy as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. I've worked with therapists like that woman, <clears throat> Beverly Engel. She is a certified therapist. I've been working with her for years. I work with, uh, I call him a coach. He's really like a spiritual teacher who is, a, he is licensed. He has a master's. So the definition of therapist for me is always interesting because now you have a lot of life coaches, therapists, people with different certifications, but working with people either one-on-one -on -one or in group settings has been completely game-changing for me. If I just relied on the books that I read, I would not be nearly the person that I am today. And I completely agree with you that there still is this stigma associated with seeing a therapist. And I think part of the reason that is, is because we see ourselves so black and white and we see ourselves either as broken or fixed. And, you know, I don't think anyone is either. Nobody's broken. We're all doing the best we can and we can always do better and improve the way we love ourselves or come from more compassion or whatever the issue is that we're working through. And I think there's this stigma that like if you that someone would need therapy. I remember that relationship that I was in back about five years ago. I started working with this woman Beverly and it was amazingly helpful. But the person that I was in a relationship with, I think not only was she a type of person. She was the type of person that would never do therapy because of that stigma. But she felt stigma just by being in a relationship with me and that I was in therapy. And I remember that we were having a conflict because she was trying to convince me that I wouldn't need therapy long term. And she was really hoping that I would get out of it so that she wouldn't be in a relationship with someone who's in therapy. Man, that was very <laughs> interesting to hear that. I... <laughs> Hearing someone else yeah. be affected because you're going that so that yeah it's true there is that stigma and you know one thing I want to go shift to is when you go off to college you go to Cornell and you get your law degree like you do very well in most people's eyes and now you're starting your own you start your own business and it's traveling but did you go that down that route of you know Cornell law school is that part of that neglect you felt from your parents to like show them. I'm worth it and I'm going to succeed in their eyes to get more emotional support from them, do you think? Absolutely. The One of the core drivers of my life from probably ages 13 to 25 were I was neglected and abandoned by uh, my parents, especially my mother. And when I say that, I mean, in a lot of ways, I didn't receive her love and her attention and all the things that any human or even animal needs from their primary caregivers. And one way that I coped was by trying to achieve and accomplish as much as physically possible so I could stand on some mountain and have all these awards and achievements and all this money. And, and I thought that once I get there, then I'll have the love that I didn't get growing up. So I went to Cornell University. You know, I was an undergrad finance major. I went to Cornell Law School. I actually did the first ever joint MBA, JD MBA program in three years total at Cornell. I basically created this program with a couple of friends of mine. And then I got a job working at one of the top law firms in the world. And then I, one of the top investment banks and then a hedge fund. And as I was going through that process, it effectively was just me trying to get the love that I didn't get growing up. And it took me a long time to realize that. And ultimately, working with a guy named Tony Robbins, he has a framework called the six primary human needs. And he helped me realize that I was chasing something called significance as a way 
to try to feel powerful and important. But what I really wanted was love and connection. And the past five years or so have been me shifting from that achievement and success orientation model over to fulfillment and doing what I actually love. Because by doing that and letting go of all these things that I thought would get me love, by just being my true self, creating a business that I love, hanging out with people that really appreciate me, not trying to get the approval of people on Wall Street, for example, I've been able to get that love that I really craved. And when you graduate college after creating this insane course for yourself, basically, and getting the MBA slash law school from Cornell, like that's that's ridiculous achievement in most eyes. And then you're on Wall Street, I assume, with a very good job. What is that time like, say, the first year? Are you just pumped that you think you're going to be able to get that emotional support from people and people are going to see you achieve? Or are you already starting to question things? Yeah, I think when I when I first got to Wall Street, at first I was just really excited and had a big ego, and I was really just thought I was the coolest guy for having this job. And the first thing that happened was I realized I was totally emotionally unprepared for the real world, especially in an environment like this. One thing that I one of the biggest learning experiences of my life was the difference between being in school and having control of my schedule and my hours and my life and this transition to the real world where you're responsible to other people and they can tell you that you have to be in an office for a certain amount of hours. And I attribute this in large part to the abuse from my past and fear and uh, painful feelings that come up when dealing with other people. Because when I was in school, even though I did this crazy law degree and MBA and all the all these things that I accomplished, I was always in control of my schedule and I could go be alone and just do work and I would do a good job and then I'd be rewarded for it. And when I got to Wall Street, I was dealing with abusive people again. And it really was re-traumatizing and triggered me a lot. There was a guy, well, there were a couple of guys in particular that I worked with. It's not uncommon in Wall Street. And it's basically undiagnosed emotional and verbal abuse that happens pretty often. And in the years that I was working on Wall Street, things like suicide were becoming more popular, depression, drug addicts. I actually lost a friend who I worked with who overdosed And I could just see the correlation between the stress at work and him using drugs. So that was really eye-opening for me. But in the first job, I was working in investment banking and I was just really focused on making money and being important and all the things that I had tried to do. And then after it got so toxic, I, I knew that I had to leave. And then I found a much better role. I was only in that banking job for less than one year. And then I found a much, much better role working in a small, very small hedge fund. I was actually the first outside hire. So it was the founder and then me, and then we built it up. And I was there for three years. And it was during that three-year period that I really started to develop as a person. And over the course of those three years, I went from initially in the beginning thinking, oh, I want to go to a bigger hedge fund and make more money to, you know, I want to have my own business. So I'll start my own hedge fund to ultimately... I want to have my own business and it's going to be something deeper and it's not going to be in finance. Or what gives you the realization that you don't want to start your own hedge fund and you want to take more of a, I guess, uh, what'd you say, crazier route or 
not so secure route to start an online business through your travels and personal development. And that seems like it'd be a lot harder to break into when you have this financial background where you could probably much easier start making money initially too. What gives you the idea to really go after that secondary option of following your passion? Yeah, I tried initially to start a hedge fund of my own, which is a pretty ambitious task. And I spoke to a lot of people about it. And I was having a hard time finding a someone who wanted to be a business partner with me, partially because I was so young. I was like 25, 26 years old. And it wasn't really working out. And now that as I reflect back on that, it's because it wasn't a must for me. It wasn't my calling in life. And I think when you start a business, as you probably know, if it's not something that you were put on this planet to do, very often it's not going to work out because starting your own business in the beginning is going to put you into really dark places. It's going to make you very afraid. It's going to require more work than probably any other job or task you've ever done in your life. And I just didn't have it in my heart to do that with a hedge fund. And the way I got this idea for my own business was over time, I was sort of cultivating these passions for travel and adventure and lifestyle design, along with coaching and helping people with difficult pasts, on the other hand. And I was looking for a, a way to monetize those things and to really just build my business. And I'm so grateful. One of my favorite things to do is a gratitude meditation where I think about three things that I'm really grateful for in my life. And one that just comes up over and over again is this vision of me being in my old building in Chelsea, in the building gym with one of my best friends and former personal trainer named Geppetto. And he was always so plugged into social media and online business and had been begging me to start my own Instagram account and just start posting all my travel pictures. And he knew that I could make money on this. And it was one of those amazing situations in life where... And my grandfather was like this with me too. And now I can understand it. And it's so amazing. A situation in life where people believed in you more than you believed in yourself. And Geppetto saw the, the potential in me. And he told me to do this. And kept saying, you know, start this Instagram account. I said, but how am I going to monetize it? And I remember being in that gym, like on the leg press, writing down in the notepad app on my iPhone. He's like branding deals, sponsored posts and all these different things. And that's what initially planted the seed for me. And then I got so excited because I saw this opportunity to travel. And one of the big influences going back to 2011. So this was like seven years ago, I'm in law school. And my friend tells me to read this book called The 4-Hour Workweek by a guy named Tim Ferriss. Mm -hmm. And that had also planted the seed of kind of tying in the travel that I did with my grandparents. And I also spent a semester of college living in Barcelona and every weekend going to a different country and just wandering the streets and seeing the world a little bit more. And those seeds had been planted. Plus, reading The 4-Hour Workweek, which if you haven't read it, is all about lifestyle design and how to be your own boss and work remotely. And that was really just kind of the vision for my life. And then when Geppetto is here giving me this business idea, I just had this aha moment and got really excited. And then I started reaching out to a lot of people in my network. And I also, fortunately, I had a good friend who had made a lot of money doing search engine optimization. 
and he kind of taught me the ropes and got me fired up. And the last, I guess, two years have been quite the journey in, in terms of taking it from an Instagram account and a blog into a real business. And I'm actually reading the four hour work week right now. So I uh, definitely know. Oh, where awesome. you're... oh, it's so good. And I just got uh, his other new book, The Tribe of Mentors. Have you dug into that at all? Yeah, I, I know that book well. I know Tim Ferriss's work and his podcast well. I haven't read that book yet, but anything by Tim Ferriss, I totally vouch for and support 100%. I think the way he thinks about the world is incredible. And I also really want to give him a shout out for the fact that he's gotten a lot deeper in the past few years in terms of going from just kind of being like a travel hacker, life hacker. And he's expanded his podcast to having people on like Esther Perel and Tara Brock and Tony Robbins. And he's really taken on this personal development journey of his own that has really benefited me and I'm sure thousands, if not millions of people as well. Yeah, because he has, he almost tried to commit suicide. He's talked about that. And that's really helpful to hear someone like him where you, you, when you come to him, you think he's on this huge pedestal and he's just like this machine of a person. When you hear his routines, like writing his books, they're insane. But then when you listen to him talk about struggles he's had and especially almost trying to end his life, you're like, okay, some people go through really dark times that are really successful too. You know, you just have to realize life's just a crazy ride. <laughs> Yeah, totally. I, I find that it's easy to kind of lionize these people or just assume. And this is something that I used to do a lot. And I teach people now about comparing ourselves to others because they say people get rewarded in public for what they've practiced for years, if not decades in private. And it's so much work has gone into what he's done. And they also say that we compare our insides to other people's outsides. And we don't know what's always going on with these people, especially the really successful ones. And you still hear a lot of addictions and suicides. So, yeah, it's really powerful when they share their struggles and how they've overcome it. Because then it it's something that I see a lot in self-compassion work, which is where if you can understand that suffering is something... And the Buddha taught this, that suffering is something that we all go through. And rather than beat ourselves up for suffering and comparing ourselves to other people, saying that they may not, no, we all have hard things in life. And it's really important to acknowledge that and not suppress it. Absolutely. I think it's, again, like almost a stigma, especially in our society, is that no one wants to show themselves struggling or no one wants to be a failure in other people's eyes. And they're... It, it apprehends them from going out there and putting themselves out there and trying to take risk. And also in the personal development sphere, being able to grow as a person when you are dealing with something, especially as a male in the US, like you don't want to acknowledge the fact that you are depressed or you have anxiety and you can't take everything on by yourself. There's just this whole thing around it. And now these people who are coming on who are very successful in acknowledging their past like that, it's a, I think it's a very powerful tool to help everyone move forward. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more <clears throat> with this stigma on... And, and it's funny because I learn a lot from TV shows, actually, especially if they're written well, like The Sopranos or Breaking Bad. And uh, I believe his name is David Chase, the creator of The Sopranos, who embeds a lot of his own personal struggles in his life and his relationship with his mother in the uh, character, the protagonist, uh, played by James Gandolfini. And a recurring thing that he says in the show when when he's talking to his therapist is 
whatever happened to guys like Gary Cooper, the strong, silent type? And it's it's like this romanticized version of a man who's always fine and like doesn't have feelings. And the reality is that men have the same feelings as women. We're just uh, told that it's okay to be angry, but everything else kind of, you know, flush it away. And then it's kind of the opposite with women where they can be sad or loving, compassionate, but a woman getting angry for some reason isn't okay. And I think this encouragement for all people, man, woman, whatever, to feel your feelings, be vulnerable, suffer, go get help, whatever. I think that could all be changed and would just be so great to see everyone feel their emotions and work through their issues rather than be in denial of them and which suppresses them. And then that's what feeds into the problems that come up later. So true. So true. And now bring it back to your story. When you do decide to start this Instagram account and blog, I imagine you're still at the hedge fund maybe, or are you just on your own? I'm going to do this from the bottom up because you had some money saved or how's that beginning process look? Yeah. So for any potential entrepreneurs out there, my advice would be to try to take things as far as you can while you still have a steady paycheck. And, you know, obviously if you have savings for years, then go for it. But the thing that I did was in early 2016, I kind of got a sense that me and my business partner weren't on the same page anymore. And that's when I officially started my first domain for my blog and I started growing the Instagram. So it's kind of early 2016. And I would just work on it on the weekends and at nights. And I would just try to build it up and take it as far as I could. And I remember it was Thanksgiving 2016. So I'd spent, you know, a good nine, 10 months kind of building this thing up and trying to lay out the business plan while I was still working in finance. And my friend asked me on Thanksgiving Day 2016, he's like, you know, how 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 do you think about when you're going to leave? When do you think you'll leave uh, your day job and do this full time? And at that time, I was making literally zero dollars in income from the new business. I was still trying to figure everything out. I wasn't selling anything yet. And I said to him, oh, I don't know. I have this steady paycheck and I'm still trying to figure things out. So I'll probably wait, I don't know, maybe two more years and then I'll go full time. And the next Monday, you know, maybe it was three days later, I uh, I left the job. I was, you know, kind of kindly asked to leave. It was somewhat mutual, but it was it was definitely time for me to go. And <laughs> what I hadn't realized was I had a podcast and I had these other things. And I was going home during lunch because I was so passionate about this that I just couldn't do any other type of work. And that's kind of why this worked. And me starting my own finance business didn't was because I was just so in love with this work that I would take any opportunity. And what I didn't realize was I was going home at like three or four in the afternoon because I lived like a 10 minute walk from the office. And I would just kind of sneak home for 30 minutes or an hour and just work on stuff. And I wasn't always coming back to the office. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and so, <clears throat> yeah, so I was asked to leave uh, like November or December 2016 and then fell off the payroll and severance and everything in February, February 1st of 2017. And it's the best thing that ever happened to me, though, because on the one hand, I did get almost a year to build it out and kind of figure things out, figure out what my savings looked like. I moved into a cheaper apartment so I could save money. And I, I really was like focused on saving money and any expenditures I made were on business related things. And then so I was really fortunate that I had that year to kind of build things up. 
But then I was also really fortunate that someone kind of ripped the bandaid off for me because I had way too much fear going on for me to just quit. And at first I was panicking and I was angry at my business partner. But now looking back on it, it's like, I wish he had done it sooner because then I was able to, I had way more savings than I thought I needed. I'd saved up money for like three years and I would have been fine with like one year savings. And I, um, yeah, just, it allowed me to just dive in and start waking up at 9am or 8am and just spending 12 hours a day on my business instead of two hours a day. And it was just a complete game changer for me. And the past year, you know, going from basically the year of 2017 was I remember that like that first night when I got home from work and I knew I didn't have a job anymore and I sat down and I looked at a blank Excel spreadsheet and I was like, all right, now I need to make money. And I think that's a big thing that I help people with, especially in like the blogging universe or the online business area is everybody wants to have like a hundred zillion followers on Instagram or, you know, they care a lot about their web traffic to their blog. And that was kind of a big pitfall that I was in for most of 2016. And then it was almost like the best thing that ever happened to me because once someone took my paycheck away, I was like, wait a minute, I need to make money now. And that's when I stopped caring about page views as much and started caring about how can I actually create something and sell something, which was a hugely valuable lesson for my business that I now teach other people that was kind of catapulted onto me because of the necessity of not having that steady check anymore. It's so funny hearing you talk about how at first you'd say for people to go as long as you can still making money while you're starting on your own. Because when I did it, I quit my job first and then I figured out what I was going to do because I was just so miserable. But then it gave, yeah. it gave me that sense of urgency when I did get the idea of, okay, I got to put everything I have into it. And that's how I've been riding this still because it's like, okay, you do have to make something of this because I'm doing two part-time jobs, just side hustling, trying to get any type of income while I'm trying to build this. And then having that band-aid or that kick in the ass really, as you said, it really set you forth going down. Okay, now I got to figure this out rather than just trying to get the page views, which are kind of, I don't like the sexy thing you think about when you're starting an online business. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's funny how <clears throat> the security to build it up first was helpful, but the band-aid now looking back on it was probably the way more powerful thing because I didn't really need that extra comfort that I thought I did. And I think we as human beings are on the side of being more afraid than we need to be. And that's actually something that I teach in some of my new courses and that I coach people on is it's, it's and it really, in my opinion, ties into how we evolved as human beings. And if you think about how long we've been here as a species relative to how our society has changed in the past, I don't know, couple hundred years, like we have these brains and we have the prefrontal cortex and the fight or flight system and all these things that were designed really to help us stay alive and not get attacked by a saber-toothed tiger or not starve to death. And so those same life-threatening fear-based chemicals that are released in our brain come up now when the reality is and it's so we're so fortunate to live in a country where for the most part we you know the worst case scenario is there are assisted living programs and we have things like food stamps and there are shelters and you know that's like the absolute worst worst case scenario that i don't think anyone would really ever get to in this line of work um but 
I think just as human beings and as we've evolved, we still tend to be way more afraid than we need to. And there are people out there who are on the other end and they just take too much risk and they crave that uncertainty. But I find that in this arena, there's it's often the case that people need to take more risk. And that's what I try to help inspire people to do. Completely agree with you. And let's go to the point again where you are let go or that mutual ending of your business relationship. And now that bandage ripped off and you have to, you're sitting there looking at the Excel spreadsheet. How do you figure out how to actually monetize and make money from this? I got home that night and I was looking at the spreadsheet. And at the time, I was doing a lot of affiliate marketing. I thought that I was going to be a blogger and I was going to drive a lot of traffic to my blog and then I would sell affiliate products through the blog. So that's initially how I started and was modeling out my income. And what happened was I kind of knew that I would do affiliate marketing in tandem with my own products or services. But what I didn't know at the time was how much more I would love doing my own products and services. Not only is it more lucrative and higher margin and you're in more control of what you sell, but it's also... I get to really do what I love and share my mission a lot better than just trying to find a good affiliate program that's out there. So over the course of 2017, I went through this process of really shifting from I was doing that affiliate marketing for probably the first month or two or three months. And then I discovered some people who had these online courses and they were all on these different topics. And there were people who were doing really well and they were publishing their income reports, which I actually really liked. A lot of people criticize people out there who publish their income. I think it was a really, really powerful thing for me, though, to see real numbers and say, okay, this person made, you know, $900,000 this year selling these courses. It gave me hope that I could say, even though I did one tenth of what they do, I could still make six figures, live comfortably, travel, live my vision. And and so I saw that and what was happening kind of in the background was I had sort of figured out how Instagram works and I'd in tandem with my blog, I really grew my Instagram up to be this tremendous account with 80,000 followers and I was getting free travel and hotels and flights and it was just really, really this amazing thing happening in my life on the side. And I said, aha, there are all these courses on Facebook and Pinterest and grow your email list and all these other courses but there weren't any really solid courses on Instagram out there. So that actually gave me the idea. And in March, I said, uh, I'll, you know, I'll do an Instagram course. <clears throat> and my friend who had a lot of SEO experience said, Hey, why don't you send an email out to your email list and offer free access to beta testers? And I was like, you know what? That's a great idea. So I sent an email out to my list and I was like, hey, who who wants a free access? I was like, respond with the word free in all caps if you want access to my brand new Instagram online course. And I got like 200 emails instantly on, on a list of like, I don't know, a thousand or something. It was a very small list. And then I was really excited. And then I was like, wait a minute. I haven't started recording the course yet, though. <laughs> <laughs> and... But again, talk about like lighting a fire to get something done when you got 200 people in a private Facebook group and they're all excited and every day they're like, Brendan, when's the course coming? When's the course coming? So version one of my course was really funny because it was just kind of me like holding up a selfie stick with my phone and talking about how to grow your Instagram account. <clears throat> it's obviously been rebranded, reshot, the price has quintupled and it's very professional as you've seen now. But 
that was like the first iteration of my course. And then what I noticed was <clears throat> when I was doing affiliate marketing, if I had like five sales at 50 bucks each, I'd make 250 bucks. But if I sold one course for 200, I'd make 300 or 200 to 300, depending on what I priced it at. And the point is, I realized that I could make a lot more money a lot faster and sell my own product, something that I love. And that was when I was like, you know, I'm going all in for my own products and kind of ditching the affiliate model. And over that time, over this past year, I then learned how to promote my courses and really, I'm really focused on like user experience and making sure that my students are loving it. And I have really active Facebook groups. And I'm basically in this position where I have my Instagram course, I have a personal development program, which is actually a membership program. And then I do some affiliate sales, but only if they fall in line with, I'm essentially recommending things as to people as they go through my course. I'm not really focused on my website at all. Very interesting to hear and really cool to see how you realize the own products are the way to go, especially as I'm someone who's thinking of how I'm going to do this right now. And before we dive back or really move forward with that, I do want to ask one thing when you leave your job and now you're sitting there yeah. and you're starting to figure out how things are going and you have this complex relationship with your family. What is What are their reactions like when you've gone through Cornell, got the law degree, the MBA, you're working for a hedge fund? And now you're saying to your family, you know what, I'm leaving that and I'm going to start a business through growing an Instagram account and an online blog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I had a lot of people essentially treat me as if I'm wasting my talent. And a lot of people who would say to me that I needed, like, you know, it's almost like it's, it's their decision and not mine, that I needed to go work in law or finance. And if I wasn't, then I'd be wasting my potential or, you know, essentially being a failure. Even if I succeeded this Instagram thing and what I'm doing with my life, which I am, even if I do, I'm still a failure in some people's eyes. And to be fair to my family, I think my parents actually liked it. Um, I'm, I'm very low contact with my family, uh, unfortunately, due to continued abuse and manipulation. I don't really talk to them much, but through the grapevines, Thankfully, my parents always were supportive of me doing something different because they knew I would be very successful, um, even in like an entrepreneurial type role. But my grandparents did not like it. And a lot of my peer group, my former peer group, I should say, did not like it or encourage it either. I remember just going back to when I had graduated law school, when I graduated from the JD MBA program, I had an open offer to go join this big law firm in New York City. And my family, my grandparents, my mother, and then most importantly, like the peer group that I was surrounded by in my life was so focused on me accepting that job offer. And they put so much pressure on me to do it. And when I turned it down to go work at a bank, you know, they, they understood because they were like, all right, he's got a major Wall Street job now. That's fine. But also, I didn't want to sit for the New York State bar exam because I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer. So why take this bar exam? And my family, especially my grandparents, just couldn't come to terms with that. And they were just kind of in denial about who I who I was as a human being. And they really couldn't accept it. And then obviously when I was leaving the hedge fund, I also had a friend. And and as I'm saying this, I, I think it's kind of obvious, but one of my favorite quotes is 
we are the average of the five people we spend our most time with. And, you know, choosing our peer group and who we surround ourselves with is one of the most important decisions that you can make in your life. And all these people that I'm mentioning who are really not supportive or in denial are people who are not in my life. And the ones who were supportive and encouraging are the ones who I keep very close to me. And they're the ones who have encouraged me to do go on and even do greater things. But I, I had a, one friend in particular who also worked at a hedge fund. And uh, one thing that he kind of fell into the trap of was when I knew that, I, I mean, I knew that I wanted so much more with my life. I wanted to be my own boss. I wanted to travel. I wanted to be able to say, hey, I'm going to work from Bali for the month of July. I want to do this. I want to change people's lives. And he just couldn't understand that. And he kept telling me that, you know, my life is pretty good the way it is already. And I should just accept that. And he was like falling into this trap of being content with where things are and just leave things alone. And that's a really toxic approach, especially if you want to go on and do great things. And the other problem was he couldn't accept that I wanted to leave finance. And uh, he would continue to send me... I mean, I, I eventually had to just direct his emails to my spam folder because even after I told him I had my own business, I told him I was making more money. You know, not that it's a money thing, but I make more money than this guy. And he uh, <laughs> he works at a hedge fund. And... Um, he would just continue to send me these hedge fund job uh, listings. And it's sad because he didn't mean any ill will by it, but this is just kind of his software, his programming, the effects of really his childhood and the way that his parents sort of treated him and made him feel like what he needed to do with his life to receive love. Like if we apply different condition statements onto the fact that we need to do something in order to receive love and that's instilled in you by your mother, your father or both, you're going to live your life that way unless you do some deep work and explore what's going on there and how do you actually change that. So he was just going through a very common pattern that you see with a lot of people. Um, but I, but I had to set a boundary and say that, you know, I can't be around people like this. And one of the coolest things that I discovered just in this past December was, so I always knew that quote, which I believe is a Jim Rohn quote about the, you're the average of your five people you spend your most time with. But then I heard an even, I thought an even cooler quote, which is, your income is the average of the five or seven people you spend your most time with. And I was at dinner recently with a friend and I was explaining this to her. And we took the receipt, we were eating sushi. And right after we paid, I took the back of the receipt and the pen and I listed out 10 people, the five people I, I was closest with in 2015. And then the five people I'm closest with now. And we did all of their salaries. We added them up. We divided by five. And the first one was like $105,000 average. And my base salary at the hedge fund was 125K. So it was spot on. And then we did the new list, which obviously was a much higher number. And then we compared it to my income now. And it was like, you know, off by 5,000. And it was like, wow. So if you just hang out with people who make four times as much money, you're going to make four times as much money. I know that's way oversimplifying things. Um, you, you have to take tremendous action to get there as well. but in my opinion, 70 to 80% of how much money we make is psychologically developed based on a belief of how much we think we deserve to be paid. Man, that was, I've never heard the, I've also, I've obviously heard the average of the five people you surround yourself with the most. But I've never heard the income side of things. That's, that's really interesting to think about. I, uh, I think I'm going to do some digging when I, when we're done with this and try to figure out how that works for me. But you know, when you're talking about, yeah. 
your one hedge fund buddy in just hearing how he's sending you the jobs. And I think it's just that conditioning that we all have growing up. And especially when you think of just if you're going out, if you go to college in the US, there is that conditioning that, okay, you get the degree. And then if you're landing a hedge fund job, like you are hitting it on the mark, you are doing everything right. So when you're hitting that mark and everyone's eyes, especially appear, and then you say, no, that's not right. And I'm doing this incredible thing that you don't get. It's just so hard for people to accept sometimes. Totally. It's, it, it, they can't even fathom it. And that actually ties in with what was one of the hardest things about me when I left the hedge fund wasn't even the paycheck. The, the harder part for me was the fact that I was an insecure person at the time who identified as this Wall Street hedge fund guy as a way to feel powerful and special and important. And at the time, like I said, you know, I wasn't making that much money. I mean, some years I'd get a big bonus, but other years we wouldn't get bonuses at all. And the the thing that I really craved at that time in my life was putting on a suit and walking into a party and someone asking me what I would do because in New York City, a lot of times people care about that. And I would like sort of love to get those questions. And I would say, oh, I work at a hedge fund. And people thought I was way richer than I actually was. And it's funny because... Well, not funny. It's actually sad that I, I really I really like that. I really like that people thought I was this like powerful, rich person. And now it's kind of the opposite where people underestimate me. And they ask me what I do. And I tell them I'm an Instagram influencer or I'm a coach or an entrepreneur. And very oftentimes, like if you ask someone... Who has more money, this hedge fund guy or some guy who's got a startup? Obviously, people are going to think the former. And I'll tell you what, like I think it's much more fun to be underestimated than overestimated. You know, it makes sense when you talk about your background and having that neglect and lack of emotional support that when you would be in that hedge fund and have the suit on, you'd want people to think you're doing really well. Like I think anyone in your situation would feel that way. And that's like just a way to mask what they're really feeling or the issues at hand, right? Totally. It's, it was all based on that neglect, abandonment, insecurity, feeling unloved. And the ironic thing is that when you, when I took the suit off and I became more my true self because I was putting, I was wearing the suit again, literally and metaphorically to try to be important and make a lot of money and get the love that I really craved. When I took the suit off and stopped pretending and just started being my true self and stopped chasing after love from the wrong types of people and just being myself a hundred percent authentically me. A lot of those people didn't like that, but I said goodbye to them. And then what happened was those were the people who were only giving me love on a very conditional basis because I was rich or because I was doing well financially in, in finance. And by taking off those masks and those layers and just peeling down to the true me at my core, which is someone who loves adventure and life and traveling and coaching and helping people, I then attracted the most amazing people. And there were so many people already in my life who I wasn't valuing because I didn't look for the right things in other people because I was I when I was wearing that suit, I was behaving similar to the people that were around me. And once I took the suit off, I also like took off these sunglasses that were distorting the way I viewed other people. And I was able to get away from people who were accepting me based on certain criteria. But then I stopped applying that criteria to other people. And then I just wound up 
in this peer group and surrounded by some amazing people who I don't care how much money they have. I don't care, you know, what their job is. I just care. Are they, you know, living a life true to themselves? And again, just focusing less on trying to feel powerful, important. I mean, there's so many times and a quote that I really like by Nicholas Nassim Taleb, who wrote the black swan and fooled by randomness. He says, if money didn't have this power status associated with it, I wonder how the world would be different because I'm now at a point where in in the beginning with my business, I said, okay, you know, I need to make a certain amount of money to pay rent and to eat. And then I crossed that and I said, okay, you know, it'd be nice to like double my income and then be able to travel and have all this extra money, which is cool. But now I'm beyond that point and I catch myself falling into this trap of wanting to make a certain amount of money. For example, wanting to get to seven figures. And I know that so much of that desire is driven by those old insecurities that I had when I was on Wall Street. And because, you know, when you get to a certain point, my grandfather used to say this thing, this quote that you can only eat one steak dinner at a time. And money, thinking about what money delivers for you versus what actually makes you happy. And if you look at all the studies, they say that once you cross, obviously it depends on the purchasing power parity and, and where you live. But they said even in the most expensive cities in the United States, Honolulu, San Francisco, and, and Manhattan, they said even after 100000 or $120,000 per year, incremental money does not add happiness to your life based on a study they did. And I really believe that. So I'm now at a point where you know, I've shed the old life, the old, old job. Still, I can fall into this trap because I think it's kind of human nature to some extent the greed and the money searching. So I'm really focused on kind of letting go of that and just, again, coming back to my passion and and my mission and focusing on that as the driving factor. Yeah, I love hearing that. I just get pumped up hearing you talk about that. <laughs> you know, we've really talked about the process of starting this business and you start to make money through courses, but a huge part of it is adventure and travel. And we really haven't even touched on that part yet. Can you... Oh, no. Yeah, can you give us some of the places you've gone or countries and then maybe give us your favorite ones so far? Totally. I I love traveling. It's one of the most fun things that I can do with my life. And I've been very fortunate to be able to travel to many countries and continents. One of my favorite, actually my favorite place for sure is Japan. I've been there twice now. I'm going back in a couple months for my longest trip to the country. I'll be there for almost a month. And I love Japan for so many reasons. I could talk about it for hours. Like if, if you were here at my place right now, if I, I took you into my kitchen, you'd see that I have Japanese tea, Japanese food. I have sake. I have Japanese whiskey all on the counter. Like I'm sort of this like closet Japanese person um, based, <laughs> on my, based on my trip there. Um, but I, I just, I'm fascinated by the culture. I think the people are the nicest people I've ever dealt with in my life. I'm a huge foodie. I love sushi. I love all food. And I think they do food. There are more Michelin star restaurants in Tokyo than in New York City, London, and Paris combined. So it's really uh, an amazing food scene. So Japan is definitely my favorite, though at a close second would be I love the Scandinavian countries like Norway, Sweden, Finland, Denmark. I had an amazing trip right after I left my Wall Street job. I spent about a month traveling through Southeast Asia. I went to Vietnam, Thailand, Laos, uh, Cambodia, and Myanmar. 
I love I love South America. I think it's hugely underrated and it's way closer than we realize. And it's an amazing continent. I'm actually going to Chile and Paraguay in a couple of weeks for an Instagram trip. And I mean, those are just a couple off the top of my head. And can so obviously personal development's a huge part of what you're doing and travel and adventure. And is there one story from one of your travels or adventures that really encompasses everything you're all about and you're able to grow from your trip. And it's also a fun story too. Is there one story that sticks out to you that you can share with us? I actually have two. One is when I was my, it was my first ever solo trip. And I really recommend that if, if you haven't done a solo trip, listeners haven't done one yet, I really encourage that because I always sort of felt this need to be with other people and and also to please other people. And once I booked this trip, and it was really fun how I did it, I I wrote a, a short little Facebook message that said, Hey, long time no talk. How have you been? I'm gonna be right by you this Christmas and I'd love to, you know, visit and travel together and say hi. And I copy pasted that message and I sent it to like 10 different friends of mine who I was connected with on Facebook in like one guy like in Australia, one guy in Germany, one in South America, and one guy in Norway, yeah. and and it was, and it was really funny. And then the guy, and you know, some people were like, "Oh, you know, it's holidays. I'm gonna be with my family." One person was like, "Yeah, I should be around, so you can come visit." And then the last guy, my friend Tobias, who lives in he lived in Norway at the time, said, "Brandon, what's going on, man?" He wrote me this really long, warm message saying how. I should visit him in Oslo and I'll stay at his apartment and he'll take me around to parties with all his friends. And then we're going to go drive like two hours into the fjords to the house where he grew up. And we're going to do Norwegian Christmas with like his extended 20 person family. And we're going to wear these red suits and drink champagne. And I was just like, done, I'm going to Norway. And on my way, I decided because I was going alone to visit him, I said, hey, why don't I stop at a couple of places along the way? So I had my first layover was in Reykjavik, Iceland, and I was there for a couple of days. And then I had a couple of days in Helsinki, Finland. And during that trip, it was really all about personal growth for me. And I just remember, I remember uh, trying to find, walk back to the Airbnb where I was staying at in Iceland. And I had these huge boots on. It was like the middle of winter. And I was just like walking through this field with snow up to my waist almost. And I was just having so much fun. And I was listening to uh, Tim Ferriss podcast episode and he had a couple guests on and they were talking about health and wellness. And then I remember being in Helsinki a couple days later and I was reading a book called Vagabonding by a guy named Rolf Potts. And the central theme to vagabonding is that we don't need to be a billionaire to enjoy life and travel the world and kind of dispels this myth of if you've ever heard the story of the Mexican fisherman versus like the Western capitalist and understanding that you can enjoy the life along the way rather than this like very Western concept of you got to work until you're 75, take no vacation. And then like when you're 80, you can go get on one of those group bus tours and go to China and you can't even walk. <laughs> and so vagabonding actually famously refers to the movie Wall Street, the original Wall Street, the Oliver Stone movie with Michael Douglas and Charlie Sheen, yeah. where they ask Charlie Sheen in the movie, 
you know, what, what's the point of this all? You're risking going to jail or dying or getting indicted and, you know, you're working a zillion hours a day and you have no friends. What's the point? Like, what's the end game? And he says, when it's all said and done, when I'm 70 years old, when I'm a multi-billionaire, then I'm going to go to China and I'm going to ride a motorcycle across China. <laughs> and and Ralph Potts totally dissects that and says, why why not just go do that now? Like you could either find a job where you work remotely, which there's so much more common, especially in this generation, or you could start your own business, or you could even take a year off or something or six months off and just go buy a bike for, you know, a motorbike for like a thousand bucks or something and drive it across the country. You could do that right now. And that's what vagabonding is all about, teaching people the difference between, you know, waiting until you retire versus just joining, as Tim Ferriss would call it, the new rich and enjoying the journey along the way now. And I just remember I was in Helsinki and I was also trying to experiment with new ways of traveling. Like rather than go pay a lot of money and go to the boring art museum and just like not really even appreciate it, I decided to do some alternative travel. And I just got on, I mean, I love audiobooks or podcasts for personal development when I travel, just put in the headphones and then listen and go. And I did that and I jumped on like the main, I got to like the main subway station in Helsinki and I took it in the opposite direction. So basically their version of the subway system, but I took it like leaving Helsinki, like going basically just out of the city and with no agenda, no purpose. And, you know, after like 30, 40 minutes, I was like, all right, I'm probably like really far out of Helsinki. And I just got off at a random stop and I was just along the water and it was so beautiful and there was art and architecture and there were just these random buildings. And I just saw these, these Finnish people just like living their lives. And just, it was really this amazing experience. And I, I just basically spent the next couple hours walking back into city center and just exploring random side streets. And I was listening to vagabonding. I completed the audiobook that day. And that was just one of the most fun, cool travel plus personal growth experiences for me. That sounds absolutely amazing. Uh, I definitely am jealous hearing that story, but it's also awesome to hear. And knowing that if we really put our mind to it, anyone can go do that trip, especially, I mean, you can take a week off and do it. But, you know, when you first, yeah, yeah, and when you first started with that answer, it actually hit on a question that I had been thinking about prior to our conversation. And that is for someone listening right now who's had the desire in the back of their head or the back of their mind to go out and do a adventure or a trip by themselves. And, you know, they're just a little hesitant because a lot of people don't do that. Usually going with family or friends, but for someone who has that desire, what is one thing or two things that they are able to experience or learn or grow on like a personal development stat standpoint that they could never do if they're going with family or friends that you're just going to be able to experience or allow you to gain that knowledge if you're just going by yourself? It's a great question. And I actually saw this happen with my friend, Dan, who I went to high school with, because I had planned my second trip to Japan, which I went on in late 2016. And I was planning the coolest meals and all this fun stuff. And my and Dan saw me doing this. And he was he asked me if I if he could join me on the trip. And I said, absolutely. And we had a great week together. But I told him that after the trip, I was going to be going to Korea and then Australia. And that I really thought it would be powerful if he 
spent the next week just totally by himself. And he went to Hakone and then back to Tokyo. And it was his first ever solo trip. And when we got home and we, we talked about how that went for him, it was really, really powerful because he said to me, you know, Brendan, I have a big family and I'm very close to my parents and both my siblings live in New York City with me. And I basically live with my girlfriend and I have all my guy friends and she's got all of her friends. And I just I didn't know what it was like to be alone. Like he, he said that he really got to know himself. And that I think one of the things that we forget when we're at our jobs or with our friends is it's really easy to lose your own identity. And that can happen, obviously, if you're a people pleaser or have more codependent behaviors, someone who's like always in a relationship because they feel the need to do that. But just in general, it's, it's very easy to lose your own sense of self. And again, coming back to compassion and self-compassion, which I think is something that's so important that I teach a lot. I find that it's very easy to be compassionate towards someone else, especially compared to being self-compassionate towards yourself. So think about seeing someone who's in pain, crying and going over and hugging them and telling them it's okay versus being able to recognize when you're in pain and actually give that same level of love and comfort to yourself. And I think that's the big concept of recognizing that you're your own person and you have feelings and you have problems and you got things that you need to tend to. You even have thoughts that come up and we're usually drowning them out and so focused on other people. And I think one of the most powerful things you can do is go on that solo trip and real and realize the power of yourself. It can be very empowering and you can kind of fall in love with yourself. I remember I went to this personal growth event here in New York a couple of years ago and I guess it was clear to the te- one of the teachers that I was going through feelings of insecurity and neglecting my own needs. And she just said, Brendan, this weekend, I want you to have a love affair with yourself. And, <laughs> and it, it was just really, it was true though. It's, I, think, I think it's really important. You know, you don't need to go on a trip with your girlfriend for every trip. You can go by yourself and, and just have a love affair with yourself. yeah man (laughs) i hear what you're saying and it's funny because i think a lot of people especially have a girlfriend might be scared to tell their girlfriend hey i'm gonna go do this by myself right now because not everyone does that it's not an everyday thing and i and people are just scared to step out of their comfort zone a lot i think once you get comfortable it's just a lot easier to stay there and when it comes to personal development and travel those are huge things that step you out your comfort zone and at the initial thing might be a little difficult, but then the reward and what you gain is always so much more. Exactly. It's, it's being able to overcome any kind of those judgments of people thinking that it's bizarre or odd that you want to go on a trip by yourself because I myself was guilty of that. I worked with a, a, the greatest guy in my first investment banking job. And he told me that he did two trips a year. He went with his, if you know, if he was dating someone, he had a girlfriend at the time, they would go on a fun trip once a year. And then once a year, he would also go on a trip just by himself. And, and at the time, I couldn't fathom that. And I think that, again, ties into this societal programming, which is that you, you have to be in a relationship, which is something we haven't really talked about. And I think that that kind of pressure to always be in a relationship also kind of prevents you from having this connection with yourself. And I say, first of all, there's nothing wrong with being in a relationship. I think it's fantastic and one of the most positive experiences of your life. But even if you're in one, 
why not also have the ability to go away just for you know your own trip and just do some self-reflection? I think that's really healthy too. And if people can build the confidence and comfort with those types of experiences, I think then you come back and you come together with that person that you're partnered with. And it just makes that time together even more rewarding. When you said the relationship thing, as someone who is single and I like being single and there's nothing wrong with relationships at all, but most of my friends at this point in our lives are in very committed relationships. And I feel like I always get like the weird look because I just, I'm like, I don't have a desire to be in one right now because I, as you said, like trying to find myself and grow myself and grow this business. And that's what I'm focused on. And one, I don't think it'd be fair to someone else because they definitely would not be my primary thought every day. And two, I just like what I'm doing right now. And if it comes to me, it comes. I'm not going to force myself to be in a relationship. And I think I can see it with some people. They are just in relationships and moving forward because they think that, okay, I'm getting close to my late 20s or my 30s. I have to get married soon because that's what everyone does. Yeah. It's the same exact thing that we've been talking about this whole time with the job stuff and the pressure and what other people think and you know the way society's messaging goes. And I would venture to say this, I know it's maybe controversial, but I would say that most relationships are not healthy and uh, about half of them do end in divorce. But I would say even among the 50% that don't, I would say the majority of those are, are dysfunctional in some way as well. I was actually just listening to a relationship podcast that was very fascinating. And it said that uh, within the first two years of a marriage, one third or more of those marriages, uh, they're the part they're not being intimate. They're called sexless marriages. Two years in, one third, and I just thought that was a really powerful statistic. And I don't cite that in defense of me, you know, saying that we should all be single, but more from the perspective of no relationship is way healthier than an, than an unhealthy one. And I think. I can really relate with where you are because for the past several years, I've been so focused on myself and improving who I am as a person and getting to that place where I've, I have fallen in love with myself enough to then go be able to love someone else and also learn how to take in their love where I'm now dating and it's a really powerful experience. But for years, I struggled with that insecurity of feeling like I wasn't enough for not being single and the judgment that comes from people who are in relationships, albeit toxic ones at times. And, you know, asking me if I'm single, me saying yes, and then them telling me that that's okay. <laughs> and me just <laughs> laughing at them, you know, <laughs> like it's, it's crazy. The, the lack of healthy relationships out there. And again, I think it just really just continues to tie into the central theme of what we've been talking about. And my own personal philosophy is, I mean, I go to physical therapy even when I'm not injured just to do preventative muscular care. And I find the same approach to be really powerful when I do therapy on myself. And when I even think about couples therapy and relationships, like I envision myself being in a situation where I'm going to retreats and personal development relationship programs with my partner because she and I want to continue to grow together. And rather than wait for the problems to come up, we're going to get in front of them and just add more tools to our relationship toolkit. And that's something I don't think majority, vast majority of couples do is there. I don't think many are proactive about growing their relationship. It's always reactive. Things are going bad. So then they start therapy. But that's a really, I think, 
powerful way to go about it is to be proactive about it. And just going back to when people give you the, like the look, if you're single, especially the buddy in the relationship, like it's you can tell so fast the healthy relationships that are great for both parties. And then everyone has their friends who are like, you guys, like, what are you doing? You clearly are not healthy for each other, but they think they have yeah. to do it. So they just keep going and it's just bad for everyone. It's a, it's just a poisonous, toxic environment for everyone around them and especially those two people. Totally. I, I couldn't agree more. And I actually had a friend who was in one of those really toxic relationships. And they basically, in the span of a few weeks, went from being broken up to engaged. And it was largely driven by more both of their parents and their pressure they were putting on the children to get married. And I just couldn't vouch for it. And there was also like, um, you know, an affair was happening on the side and I was asked to be a groomsman in the wedding and I couldn't do it. And, you know, I'm, I'm not friends with that person anymore, which I think is really powerful for me to set a boundary like that. And it was very hard at the time. But I, I knew that, again, surrounding myself with this person also happened to be abusive at times towards me. So I knew I had to get out. But it was just a really, really powerful, um, but also very challenging at the time thing for me to have to do in terms of just admitting what's going on in life and and you know all the things that i've been talking about it's not just been me you know scaling this big business and traveling and partying there has been tremendous pain and and a tremendous uh challenge on my shoulders of having to say no to a lot of people turn down a lot of things that seemed like good opportunities for me it's been it's been a lot. It's been very hard at times and it's still hard. It's not like I'm on the other side now and everything's always amazing. I think I have the opportunity to be more grateful and to enjoy it more. But, you know, this is uh this is a journey that's going to require work. Like when I sell my products and services, I don't say, you know, just buy my course and your life will change forever. As I'm sure you know very well, the the amazing things that can come of this are life-changing and so powerful. You can really get anything you want in life. But as you've probably seen, it requires hard work and it's going to trigger painful points and emotions. Oh my God. Yeah. I So on Thursdays, so my the way I run my, this podcast is Tuesdays are interviews with like yourself. And on Thursday is all about the journey and I am just transparent. And there are a lot of dark times and self-doubt and all those things. And I talk about working through those and just different angles. So it's relatable and people, you know, can grow with me and know they're not alone. So that's the whole idea. So I definitely know where you're coming from with that. And what are, what is one, I guess you could look at it, look at it as a failure or one big obstacle since you've gone out on your own where it did get dark for a while, but then you're over to overcome it. That's a really good question. One of the hardest things for me to face was the fact that I was addicted to a bunch of different things and thankfully not hard drugs or anything like that. But I did have a real compulsive behavior towards either spending a lot of money on things to try to feel important or food or even something that I gave up last year. I quit using pornography totally, which has been like a total game changer in my life and my ability to relate with women and be in a relationship. But all these all these things were really hard for me to give up. And I, I've, I've studied addiction very closely and I now can help coach people on it. 
And one of my spiritual teachers uh, runs a group and we have former alcoholics and, and, and I never, well, that's not true. I was just going to say, I never really drank compulsively, but if I look back to, for example, like my first year of law school and my first year of college, and even alcohol is something that I, I try to be careful with and I'll only drink it, you know, in moderation and trying to really all these things, you know, whether it's going out with women or alcohol or food or traveling, I've really had to reshape the way that I do these things. Because when I used to work in finance and I was had a lot of anxiety, and if you dug deep enough, you'd probably find depression there as well. I didn't realize, but I was using all these substances and activities and behaviors in an addictive way to mask my emotions. And one of my favorite books is The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. And in that book, he says, every addiction arises from our unconscious desire to avoid facing and moving through our own pain. And for me to sort of strip down the layers, it's almost like when I was working in finance, I had all these layers of clothing on and like the first t-shirt represented food. The next t-shirt represented drinking. The next t-shirt was pornography. The next t-shirt was something else was money. And each layer that I've stripped off has been so powerful because it's given me the opportunity to stand tall and be my true self and follow my real purpose in life. But each layer that I strip is also making me more vulnerable and making me have to face the pain that I haven't worked through from my past or just the inevitable pain that comes up in life that you have to sit and feel before you let go. And that has been very powerful, but also has been very dark for me because there have been times where I've just really uh, been, it's been very hard for me to let go of certain behaviors and certain ways of you know, for example, even traveling got to a point where I was really doing it in this escapism way. When I went on that really fun trip to Scandinavia and Iceland, that was very empowering and healthy. But then got to a point where I was going on a trip, an international trip every month alone. And I was just going and booking these really expensive meals or just kind of like hiding out from the world. And it became very compulsive and very focused on a behavior that would allow me to cover up my true feelings, uh, which is really what addiction is. It's when, you know, because they say the addiction isn't really about whatever you're using. Nobody ever smoked a cigarette and was like, mmm, this is delicious. You know, <laughs> you smoke it, you choke on it. Same thing with like, you know, if you, the first time you drink beer, like, I'm not talking about these like cool, like craft chocolate or raspberry beers. I'm talking about like nobody goes to a liquor store and buys like a pint of Smirnoff vodka and chugs it because they like the way it tastes. They're doing it because they have pain going on in their life and they're doing whatever they can to escape from it. And one of the darkest places I've ever been in my life is admitting to myself that I was addicted to these different things and getting in touch with this guy who's now my spiritual teacher, who himself was a former probably drug, alcohol, and also sex addict, and to now be in his men's group where we have all these former addicts and uh, I think two of the guys abused alcohol, some abused pornography. Like, But it's such, it's such a powerful group and we're all just feeding off of each other's energy and they've inspired me so much um, because one of the things is a lot of them are married and so they've they've been real role models to me and how they've modeled intimacy. And that's really been something that's allowed me to go out there this year and start dating again. 
So that has definitely been been hard, uh, very hard um, for me. You know, hearing you go through all those different layers and things you had to deal with, it just had me thinking is one of the most profound things that I've realized has come to me since I've gone out on my own and taking this on this, you know, trying to start your own business and personal development is how everything's connected in our life. Like the physical, the mental, the way you live your life and abuse different things. Everything's connected to your overall well-being and what's going to allow you to succeed in the end on a personal level and how you have to just keep working on yourself and working at everything. And you can't let off. Like everything is connected. It's crazy when you start to really reflect and you need to be able to reflect and realize your core issues and be able to work on those and tackle those. And it's just crazy to me how everything is like that final works together to be the final product of who you are. Mm-hmm. Everything's connected from the thoughts you think to the journal entries you write to the the food that you put in your body affects all, it's, it's all connected. Like even like I said, the food now I've changed my eating habits. So I sleep better and I'm the way I process emotions while I'm sleeping, I wake up feeling better about myself and it, it's, it's all, it's all connected. And that's what I'm so passionate about personal growth and self-improvement because I initially picked up that first book five years ago because of a mainly this relationship and trying to figure out how can I get this relationship to work. And little did I know that, you know, five years later, I'd be standing here in my office, holding a microphone on someone else's podcast, running my own business in two weeks, jumping on a plane to go to Santiago, Chile to do wine tasting. And, you know, that's why I love this personal growth because it, it forces you to be your authentic self. And that starts with whatever you're starting with, but then it's going to affect your health, your wellness, your relationships, your friendships, your job. And it's it's all connected totally. And do you have a morning routine or daily habits that you do every day that you know really sets you up for success for the day and helps keep going and growing with that personal development level? Yes. I actually use this phone app called Habit Share that I really like. And the three things that are on my list that I do, not always every day, but like I would say most of these tasks, I I require myself to do them five days a week. And the three that I have right now are meditate, uh, do 15 pull-ups, and take a hot bath. And the hot bath is (laughs) the least frequent, it's twice a week. But the reason I have that third one is because for me personally, I have a harder time slowing down than speeding up. And so obviously you got to set your goals and your habits based on what you need help with. But it's funny because I actually need like, you'll notice that my habits don't say go to the gym or do work or go do something because I, I err away on the side of doing too much. So my habits are more meditate, you know, take a hot bath, relax, go for a walk, things like that. My other morning routine is I definitely make a hot tea every morning. I shifted to uh, one of those electric tea kettles. So I just push a button and I got my teas coming on demand. I started with this meal service program called Sakara, S-A-K-A-R-A. And not only do they deliver me really healthy, organic, plant-based meals, mostly vegetarian, very delicious, very good for you, but they also bring this package every week, which includes either probiotic chocolate or some kind of fun little booster, but also uh, very healthy and good tea. 
and I'm a huge tea drinker. So my morning routine will involve me playing with my dog, meditating, hanging out, but then getting up, clicking that button on my tea kettle and then having one of those teas and just really trying to enjoy that. And then also my spiritual teacher, we speak once a week on the phone. We do a men's group once a week, but I also leave them a voicemail twice a day, morning and night. So my morning routine also includes once I've sort of gotten up and I've checked in with myself, <clears throat> I call and leave them a little voicemail. It's almost like a like a journal. It's like a, you know, this is my plan for the day. And then at the end of the day, same thing. I call him, I leave him a message. And, you know, he's listening to them. And a lot of times he picks up and we actually talk, especially if there's something big that needs more attention. But the real purpose is to train myself to begin and end my days by checking in and slowing down and seeing what worked and what didn't work to get more in touch with what's going on. Love it, man. Thank you for sharing that. And as we begin to wrap things up for the listeners, where can we find you? Where can we follow you and check in on what you're up to? Yeah, definitely. My website is brendanhburns.com. Awesome. And I will definitely put those in the show notes. So don't worry about it. I will have you covered on that. And then Brendan, really last thing here, and this is why I just, you know, really love doing this. What I'm doing right now is because you at first risked a guy I bought an Instagram course from. <laughs> and then we talked on the phone. <laughs> yeah. And then we talked on the phone. And I was like, oh, he's a really good guy. And then looked into you a little bit more and have you on the podcast. And we just have this amazing conversation. It goes so much deeper than you ever could imagine. And from Instagram course to what we just did, I mean, those are just the things that keep you going in this, you know? And I just want to ask you, is there one last thing you want to say to anyone who's listening right now? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on your show. This has been a really fun, but also powerful conversation. And I'm really looking forward to listening to this again afterwards. So thanks again for having me on. In terms of one thing to tell someone, it would be don't hesitate to take a look on the inside of yourself. And don't be afraid, whether it's therapy or setting up a coaching session or picking up one book on self-improvement, because it's not like you need to be broken and you need to be fixed to go into this line of work. You can take the book, for example, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, take a millionaire who's married and they could read that book and it's going to make them a multimillionaire or it's going to give them even more love, power, happiness, whatever they want in life. So I just really encourage any listener out there, if anything I said resonated with you, don't be afraid to take that next step. It's no reflection of anyone needing anything. It's a matter of wanting to be even more happy, fulfilled, or successful. Great way to end the conversation. And again, just thank you so much, Brendan. And uh, we'll stay in touch. My pleasure, Sean. Thanks again.